you can buy some of these franchises at a third of book value, assuming that their deposits don't run out the door and their loan books don't have major problems and their cost of deposits are do not squeeze their earnings to nothing. You probably can do okay. Ben Graham, who wrote The Intelligent Investor and was Warren Buffett's professor at Columbia, say said if you buy you know, something at 30% of book value, mathematically, you're going to generally do okay. You know, banks, maybe it's a little bit more difficult on that than that because their business is so fleeting. I still think, though, that, you know, a company like Schwab is ju it's just a world-class enterprise. Hello again, and welcome back to Investing Experts Podcast. I'm your host for today, Rena Sherbel. Super excited to bring you another conversation with Cashflow Hunter, the famous Cashflow Hunter, who was wise enough to predict the implosion of Silicon Valley Bank, and we talked to him a couple months ago. Very excited to bring him back on the show discussing his newly launched investing group service on Seeking Alpha called Catalyst Hedge Investing, what investors, subscribers can look forward to from his investing group, what he is looking at in the marketplace today. We get into some specific stocks, among them Charles Schwab, the financial sector, the tech sector, the broader marketplace, what stocks he's looking at, what he thinks investors should be focused on. Check out Catalyst Hedge Investing on Seeking Alpha. Just type that in to our search box. Check out our other investing groups. They're always on the left side margin on our website, Explore Investing Groups. Hope you enjoy this conversation with Cashflow Hunter and enjoy your week. Cashflow Hunter, super excited to have you back on Investing Experts. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. It's great to be back. It's great to have you. And exciting news for the Seeking Alpha audience or for Cashflow Hunter audience. Would you share with listeners what you have going on at Seeking Alpha and uh, what exciting news you have to announce? Absolutely. We are launching Catalyst Hedge Investing Investment Group. So very excited. A lot of work has gone into it. Trying to build a very dynamic, intelligent community of, I think, intellectually curious, fairly experienced, sophisticated investors. That sounds like a, a nice setup. What are you looking to cover? What should investors be looking forward to? What are you kicking around over there? So I think the central offering is, uh, and it's one of a sort of a differentiating uh, offering for uh, the site is that I am uh, a hedge fund portfolio manager and I attend quite a few hedge fund networking events, either conferences or idea dinners, stuff like that, where hedge fund, either analysts, portfolio managers, traders, um, they get together and they, they talk ideas. You know, there's no collusion, obviously. It's all it's all very uh, above board, very carefully. Everyone's very careful on how they conduct themselves. But, you know, that is how a lot of ideas get tossed around the hedge fund community. And I, I attend quite a few of those types of events. It's a very good source of new investment ideas, both long and short, and hoping that I can bring that idea flow to an investor community that is intellectually curious enough and uh, experienced enough to appreciate a well thought out long or short investment idea that really was put together by a fairly experienced professional investor. It's nice to hear intellectually curious is still a market these days. 
Uh, <sighs> cheers to the intellectually curious, those still keeping that flame alive. Nice to see that community develop. Remind listeners what, what the full name is going to be. Catalyst Hedge Investing. You know, most hedge fund ideas or ooh, quite a few hedge fund ideas are there is some catalyst to unlock the value. You know, whether it's long or short, it's something if it's a if it's a long, it's something that's going to make a stock go up, and if it's short, it's going to something's going to make a stock go down. So that's the catalyst part, and the hedge part is running long and short. So I think it does a nice job of, of describing what the service offering is going to be. And then you're going to be sharing ideas. You're going to be chatting. They're going to be able to ask you questions. How does it? What does it look like? How's it going to work? Yeah, that's a great question. So like a lot of other investing groups, the, the bulk of the ideas that I, or articles that I write, I probably said the, the best ideas are going to be uh, only for subscribers. And, uh, you know, there are quite a few names of which I might be the only analyst or one of two analysts. So those ideas will be staying behind the paywall. And then really what I'm hoping is, and because I've, been a part of these types of networks before is having a uh, very active and lively chat board uh, where you know I post ideas that I heard at an idea dinner. I maybe haven't done all the work on it, but I can at least just post what I the the list of name companies that were discussed. I can give a few thoughts here and there. I haven't really, like I said, I haven't done the full enough work to do a full write up on the name, but I can throw those names out there and at least be uh, to moderate a conversation on them. I've already put some ideas from my idea dinner I attended last week into the chat room. So I'll be doing that. And then also I'll be really you know, happy to interact one-on-one -on -one individually with individual uh, subscribers. They will have exclusive act access to me. I will not be responding to one-on-one uh, you know, -on -one to in inbound messages anymore. Um, and I get quite a, bit, quite a bit of those actually. So uh, Unfortunately, people want to interact with me. It's gonna they're gonna be part of uh, the subscriber pool. Yeah, as as the analysis gets more top shelf, the the access is included in that. Is there an increase in people reaching out to you since the Silicon Valley bank call? Oh yeah, yeah. yeah it's it's been a sea change really of people who have reached out to me. Yeah, some people have just been very nice and sort of congratulating me on on a good call. But, you know, I've also had quite a few people reaching out and, you know, just asking my opinion about things. And, you know, I'm happy to do that. But if someone's paying extra for a subscription service, they ought to get, you know, a premium access to me. And so that's how I'm going to be restricting that. But really, I'm looking forward to mostly not just to interacting with individual subscribers uh, on a one-on-one -on -one basis, but really also having a really lively chat board with like I said, you know, I think what what I've been told by a lot of people seeking alpha is that my followers tend to be the more experienced or however you want to describe it, sophisticated investors on the site. You know, people who you know might have the most assets to manage and act and, and manage them the most actively, mm -hmm. rather than you know they're not just buying ETFs or buying individual stocks. And so, you know, that's that's great. I, I really do appreciate having uh, a more sophisticated follower. And I'm hoping that the uh, subscribers and the chat board will be a forum for, you know, individual 
subscribers to or individual investors who I, I are more thoughtful to interact with one another as well. Mm -hmm. I'm always saying to anyone who will listen that one of the things I love best about Seeking Alpha is the commenters because the conversation is such, um, you know, you're speaking to the sophisticated investor. I think the commenters are by and large, it brings a, a forth quite a, a fruitful conversation. And given that experience, I would imagine, although I'm curious, I would imagine that it helps your analysis as well as you helping other people's analysis. I imagine that feedback loop is very beneficial for everyone. Have you had comments where you are rethinking something that you were certain of or something to, to make you rethink something? Oh, absolutely. So yeah. That's a really great point. So I tell people you know, who ask me why I, I do these articles and why I even bother engaging with some of the comments, because some of them are are, are a little rude, <laughs> particularly if I, uh, if I if I call for a short on a company that someone's long and likes a lot. Uh, but anyway, I write up these investment theses because one, it helps to write something out to make sure that as a check that you know when you write in and out, does it really make sense? Does it pass your own internal sniff test? Secondly, one of the uh, things that I do get quite regularly comments from people or direct messages from people who are following a company that I've written about who might just know a factoid that I just didn't get. You know, one of the, the downsides of being a portfolio manager, and particularly a generalist portfolio manager, I mean, there are a lot of upsides to it. But one of the downsides versus a, a sector analyst, all they do is cover, say, 10 names, is you're not going to know necessarily everything about a company that you write about. And, you know, frankly, even if you are a sector analyst and you only cover 10 names, you're, you still stand a really good chance that you're going to miss a factoid here and there. Analysts are fallible people. Is that is that? Yeah, imagine that. Right. And so I have definitely gotten some very, very useful feedback and some really interesting data points, not just when I write the article, but, you know, it could be weeks or even months after I've written an article and I'll get a little notification. So-and-so commented on your article from you know December or whatever, and it'll be a development from a company that I, and I just missed. And, but it could be truly meaningful. And I've definitely, definitely seen that. Um, the Coinbase short that I posted, uh, has been a case in point. I've really gotten some really, really useful commentary and very helpful uh, data points about Coinbase that maybe I'm, I'm aware of and, or I would have seen it eventually, but these people call it to my attention in real time. And that's incredibly helpful. And frankly, it's also good to hear the other side yeah. of an investment thesis. You know, it's if it's, you know, someone just having a temper tantrum because they don't like the way I describe something or just because they took the other side of them. That's not helpful, obviously. But uh, if it's somebody who, you know, has a thoughtful opposing view of a company, that's that's very helpful as an investor. One thing you have to be is humble and you have to be open minded 
And you have to be willing to admit, hey, maybe you're wrong. And, you know, if somebody has a thoughtful point to make that can you make you reconsider your point of view, then that's helpful, too. Yeah, absolutely. Speaking to the intellectually curious, it's better to be curious and, and humble than than right. And I think it oftentimes leads you to being evolutionary right, if not right in the moment. But I think it sets you on the right path. Right. And speaking to the long and short picture, your recent public articles on Seeking Alpha speak very much to looking at both sides of the market. And I, I was going to start with your more recent article, but because you started with Coinbase and I'm interested to hear what helped your thesis on that, I'd be interested to hear you had a strong sell on that at the end of March, interested to hear how you're thinking about that today and, and maybe how you're looking at that sector even. Yes. Yeah, so, you know, my my thinking is definitely evolving, continually evolving about crypto in general, but regardless of my views on cryptocurrencies as an asset class, I am fairly convinced that Coinbase was an early mover in the crypto trading space that has really not evolved, or, or at least they haven't evolved with the, the marketplace or the marketplace has really just evolved past them. And the biggest issue I have with them is that their take rate, it's another word for commission, uh, is over one and a half percent per side for a transaction. So if you, if there's a hundred dollars worth of Bitcoin traded, they take a dollar fifty from the buyer and they take a dollar fifty from the seller. I mean, that, those kinds of commissions just don't exist anywhere. So if you buy a hundred dollars of Bitcoin and then you sell a hundred dollars of Bitcoin, you end up paying three over three dollars of commissions to Coinbase, and you can do that transaction on like interactive brokers or on you know, really a number of other brokerage services for significantly less significantly less for you know types of commissions that are you know commensurate with you know stock trading commissions which is, makes sense right i mean it's not it's a fairly commoditized product at this point if you want to uh, trade some of the uh, lesser known currencies that have a a moniker that men are probably not allowed to use in polite society, then, uh, you know, maybe Coinbase is going to be the place for you to do that. But the, the bulk of the volume is Ether and, and Bitcoin. And you really just, you just don't need to be paying such egregious fees to them. And then, you know, they also have this massive overhang of the SEC and uh, really coming after them. And one thing I've learned in, you know, 25, 30 years of doing this, if the government really wants to make your life hell and shut you down, they're going to figure out a way to do it. And, I, you know, these guys have taken the strategy of saying the government's coming after them and they're going to then poke the bear uh, rather than saying, okay, what do you want us to do? And I, I think that's really going to not serve them very well in the future. Mm -hmm. And what did you pick up that was useful or that elucidated something that you weren't maybe aware or paying attention to? Well, look, I mean, they, they uh, the crypto space is a little complicated. It's a little confusing, frankly, still to me. So, you know, people who will clarify certain, you know, terminologies or certain practices, 
people will have, you know, they'll alert me to certain volume increases or decreases on the crypto, on the Coinbase network. They'll give me updates on what the SEC is, you know, talking about doing. You know, it's, there's just, there are a lot of different inputs into that situation. And it's, unless you're just following it constantly, it's really hard to keep up with it on a, you know, on a minute by minute basis. Yeah. We had Kirk Spano on a few, I guess, a couple weeks ago at this point and, and before that as well, talking about how he likes Bitcoin in the crypto space and really doing a deep dive into why he likes Bitcoin specifically, as opposed to any of the other coins or anything else in the sector. A anything that you would share or care to share in terms of your views on, on Bitcoin or crypto or how investors can or should be looking at that space? Well, like I said, my viewpoint on Bitcoin is evolving. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I generally still view it as a solution, still looking for a problem. Uh, I think there, there's, for the, there are a lot of really, you know, I guess the term is trade, <laughs> uh, but unkosher, uh, non-kosher, you know, uses for Bitcoin of relatively, you know, of bad actors utilizing Bitcoin for, you know, not the most legal of purposes. Um, but look, that said, there's been an awful lot thrown at Bitcoin over the past, you know, six to 12 months, and it's still around. So, you know, I struggle to see how it has a lot of intrinsic value, but that, that doesn't really matter. You know, I, one of the first things I saw in business school was this whole study on how diamonds don't have any intrinsic value. There are a lot of diamonds out there. The flow of high quality diamonds is controlled by a, an entity that would be considered a monopoly anywhere in the United States, certainly, the, the De Beers. But, you know, they've managed to control the flow. And so diamonds have rare rarity and they have value because people want them and they have a, a, a rarity even though it's an, a, an artificial rarity so why can't bitcoin be the same way i don't know if that holds up i don't know if that holds up i, I really don't I, I i don't own any bitcoin personally but again my view on bitcoin doesn't even matter and it's not even necessarily pertinent to uh, my views on coinbase Mm -hmm. I think Coinbase really just its service is not particularly valuable and they still charge fees as if the world is 2015, not 2023. Mm -hmm. Speaking of selling and being bearish on a stock, we're going to stick for a second on, on, on the bearishness, if we may. Your sure. your most recent article on 3M you want to give listeners a taste of, of how you're thinking about that stock and, and why you're so bearish on them? Uh, absolutely. So unlike Coinbase, which rips, rips or whips around and can be very painful to be short because if Bitcoin goes to the moon, Coinbase goes to the moon, regardless of what is actually happening internally at Coinbase, 3M is actually a significantly easier short because it's a sleepy industrial company. No one's going to think that uh, 3M is disrupting with the world with anything. Uh, their most recent quarter, they, they have four, four uh, business lines. Um, their most recent quarter 
all but one of them was negative organic revenue. And, you know, if you, that's, that was with significant ad backs that I don't know if it necessarily should be adding back if you, uh, but, and the only business they had, business line they had that was positive organic revenue growth was healthcare. And that was right around 1%. So this is not a high growth business. So Jim, I step back and say, okay, this is a low to no growth, maybe potentially shrinking industrial company. And most signs I see, and I've written about this on Seeking Alpha, is that the economy is slowing, at least from an industrial production standpoint. You know, the Philly Fed numbers are continuing to be terrible. There is a uh, some one of the Fed's Federal Reserve branches reported economic activity, I think, Monday. It's you know, really, really bad, you know, uh, recessionary type numbers. So at the very least, you have a low to no growth industrial company entering into recession. It's typically not a great environment for them. So I think that a lot of people own 3M because they pay a fairly, you know, hefty dividend. But I think that dividend's at risk. And there are a couple of reasons for that. One, they are trying to spin off their healthcare business, thinking that it will garner a multiple expansion and that the multiple expansion that that will garner separated from the rest of 3M will offset the multiple contraction that you will likely see at the rest of the core business of what's whatever's left. I don't know. I, I, I walked through the math in my write-up of how I think that's a bit of a stretch of how that, that would be coming out. Uh, actually, you can make the argument, and I did in my piece, that uh, separating the company out might actually depress the overall valuation of 3M, of the two companies. But if they did get rid of the, they did spin off the healthcare company, likely that the dividend would be unaffordable. And, you know, would people look at the uh, combined dividend power of the two separate entities? Perhaps. My experience is they, people usually don't do that. So if they did spin off a healthcare company, I think the dividend would be at risk. But that aside, I think that there, there are two very large looming liabilities that act as catalysts. Again, going back to the catalyst name of that could really destroy a, a tremendous amount of value, one of which could actually pressure 3M so much that it went into bankruptcy or at least wiped out a lot of equity value. So one is they have um, earplugs that they sold to the military. I laid out all kinds of you know reasons why I thought this was going to be a major problem for them. There have been 16 lawsuits that have gone to trial. 3M's lost 10 of them. And some of the verdicts have been, you know, in the, I think one of the verdicts is over $100 million. So these, these are very big liabilities. And it's a super politically unpopular thing to have going on, right? I mean, you sold, you know, our men and women who are defending the country, you sold them faulty equipment, and now they have hearing loss. I mean, that's not a good place to be in if you're a company. Right. I mean, what are you going to say? Here's five grand. Thanks. And that, that's basically what they're saying is that there's a billion dollar liability and there's 200,000 soldiers who have hearing loss. Five grand is not going to cut it. You know, I, I think it could be at least 10 times that, which is 10 billion and potentially, you know, 20 times that, which 
you know, would be $20 billion. If it's $10 billion, look, that, that takes the company from, you know, uh, to two and a half turns of leverage, which is probably low investment grade that, that will hurt their cost of capital. Um, not to mention it would wipe out over a year's worth of EBITDA, two years worth of free cash flow. The really big hit is going to be from the PFAS liability, which these are these forever chemicals. It's, it's the stuff that basically went into Scotchgard. Is these chemicals that are invented in the 30s that never break down. 3M has produced them for upwards of 90 years. The major problem for 3M is that it was used in fire-retardant foam, and that stuff got sprayed everywhere and has leached into over 3,000 water reservoirs in the country, water utilities. And the EPA on March 14th put out a preliminary ruling uh, saying that they are considering of labeling uh, PFAS as a hazardous material and that the only, the safe content of PFAS in a water supply is four parts per trillion, down from uh, where a lot of these water utilities are 70 parts per trillion. And the cost of getting from 70 to 40 to four is, you know, estimates are somewhere like, you know, potentially like $300 billion. And the real death knell is if it they, if the EPA gets a hazardous material ruling, or they're allowed to call it a hazardous material, they can then declare water supplies that have too high of a content as a SERP, as a Superfund site, in which case they just say, you know, do not pass go, do not collect $200 and just pay me. Um, so there's not, there's not even a trial. And I, if you ever deal with the EPI, uh, very difficult to appeal those guys. So um, there is a trial starting June 5th. I think it'll probably wrap up by the beginning of July. And I think the, uh, the news flow from that trial, it's like a few water districts in Florida are getting together suing 3M uh, for the cleanup costs. And um, I just think the news flow from that is going to be really, really bad. And so, you know, if 3M, if the liability is, I, I think it could be as, you know, easily north of 20 billion, potentially north of 30 billion. If it's north of 30 billion, you know, that's over half of the current market cap. If they had to pay it up front, that would severely stress the balance sheet, potentially knocking them into bankruptcy. And then the, the other real risk is that you would have so many different claimants coming after them for cleanups that the only way they would be just in litigation hell forever. And the only way to get all of those claimants into uh, one uh, pool would be that they could then negotiate with would be going through bankruptcy. So we've seen this before. We saw it with uh, asbestos. Pretty much every company that ever produced asbestos had to file for bankruptcy. There's over, I think, over 70 companies had to file for bankruptcy, including fairly large companies like Owens Corning and and Grace. And it took a while for those guys to clean up their liabilities. The opioid companies, unless they were really big companies like J&J, they had to end up filing for bankruptcy to, again, get all the claimants into one pool that they could then negotiate a settlement with in a more rational form. 
I mean, the bearish case certainly seems quite compelling. Is Would you attribute it mostly to a case of short-sighted management overall? I think management's kind of in be caught between a rock and a hard place. It's going to mm-hmm. be really hard for them. Uh, yeah, yeah, manage, this current management didn't start making these forever chemicals. Uh, in fact, 3M is getting out of the PFAS business. I think they're going to shut it down. So they're going to shut it down by 2025. They announced that in December. They're going to take a pretty big charge this year um, as part of that. You know, they're sort of hand they're dropped into a really gnarly situation, uh, and I, I think they're probably doing their best. Well, like this management paying the price of a short-sighted management if if it's not this specific management? Um, yeah. Or it's like what you're saying, it's history has caught up to a faulty system. Yeah, it's sort of history caught up. I mean, I, I think, look, the asbestos guys, I mean, I think some asbestos guys, when they first started making it in the 20s or 30s, said, oh, I don't mm-hmm. think there's anything wrong with this. What mm-hmm. do I know? The, the question is, is they've continued to make it, even though the data now is coming out that, you know, these PFAS, they cause kidney damage, they're potential carcinogens, there's all kinds of problems with them. You and I probably have PFAS in our blood. I mean, it's it's literally everywhere. Mm-hmm. So where's the good news? <laughs> where Where are your rose-colored glasses settling on these days? I know that there's a few stocks in a few different sectors. If um if people are looking at your recent Seeking Alpha articles that you have your eye on that you like, what are some names or some sectors or some places that you're you're liking these days? Yeah, well, before we get into that, I mean, there's another company. Uh, so I released a 3M article uh, broadly. I'll be writing about another company that I think has very high PFAS liability. It's also a potential bankruptcy candidate, but that will be staying behind my uh, my paywall. So that's uh, that'll probably get published tomorrow afternoon, or if not Friday morning, but it'll be staying behind my paywall. So anyone who wants to learn about another short along the same lines, you'll have to uh, subscribe. And as far as companies that I still that I like, you know, like I. A lot of what I've been following has been stuff that's more special situation oriented. Mm-hmm. So, look, I, I think broadly, the markets are in a little bit of a scary place. You know, we're headed into what I view as a recession. I think uh, the market is, you know, uh, an S and P over four thousand. Uh, I have seen quite a few estimates. S and P earnings are going to be quite well below two hundred dollars this year. So, S and P trading at if that's true, the S and P is trading well over twenty times earnings. Going to recession that's with you know potential budget impasse in Washington in June. I don't know. It doesn't sound to me like it's the the greatest most propitious time to be in you know buying just the general market. Um, and I think the, the general market has been driven higher predominantly by a handful of large tech companies. You know, their earnings have, have been pretty good, but a lot of the, the buying power. And I saw a report from Goldman Sachs yesterday saying that a lot of the buying power behind this rally has come from the CTAs, which are, you know, all quant driven. And they've bought like $180 billion worth of stock over the past 30 days. 
so they, and that they're sort of max 100% long right line right now. So a lot of the buying power has left the market. You know, what was interesting today is, you know, Microsoft is one of the largest components, if not the largest component of the S&P these days. And um, Microsoft, you know, had a, had a huge day and the S&P was still down. So you know, Microsoft up 7% and the S&P is still down today. That's not a great sign for the market. Uh, so I, I really try to focus more on situations that I think should be uncorrelated to the market. So one of the situations I think is very interesting is this company called Cineos Health. I wrote about them as a potential buyout. I didn't you know, come up with this on my own. Uh, there was a deal reporter article out there uh, two weeks ago that laid out the not it named the uh, the banks that Cineos Health hired to conduct a sale process. It named several firms that are in the second round of the bidding process to uh, for the company. And it, what's interesting about that is. Two of those bidders are um, one's Advent, the other one is uh, Thomas Lee, the firm called Thomas Lee, and uh, both those companies had sold uh, companies into what is now Cineos, and they both have carve-outs in the bonds that if they ultimately buy the company back, there's no change of control provision in the bonds. So that gives them an advantage in financing a, a takeout deal. So, look, I, I like that business as just a standalone business. I think it's very interesting. I don't think there's much downside if no deal materializes. And I think there's really nice upside if a deal does materialize. So I, I love those situations where you say, okay, well, you know, if I'm wrong and nothing happens, this may be $5 of downside. And if I'm right and something good happens, there's 20 to $25 of upside. Those are those risk reward ratios that you know you you really look for, um, at least in the hedge fund community. Mm-hmm. As we're kind of coming to the end of of this conversation, and it's not the last one, I I hope for for this space. I hope not too. I love talking to you, Raina. Same, same, same. So one of the things that I wanted, you know, we touched on it at the beginning of the conversation in terms of Silicon Valley Bank, and we had you on talking about the fallout, and we were talking about some financial stocks last time you were on. And we've been coming back to Charles Schwab on the show, and especially with recent earnings that were up in the past couple of weeks. How are you looking at that space in in the market and uh, thinking about either big banks or regional banks or the financial sector at large? I think if you're a long-term investor, you know, if you want to own J.P. Morgan, something, some franchise like, like that, that's really just a world-class, wonderfully run franchise. It's just a money machine you're probably okay there. I mean, I'm not saying that, you know, JP Morgan, where's that trading these days? It's, uh, yeah, it's at, you know, 135, you know, sub 10 times earnings. You're probably not going to get hurt long-term owning JP Morgan. The uh, smaller regional banks are priced as, as if they're going out of business still. For, uh, First Republic, by all extent, uh, seems like it's on death's door. It, it might be going out of business, actually. But look, the, there are going to there. I'm sure there are small regional banks or medium-sized regional banks right now uh, that are priced as if their earnings are going to be 
pressured for quite a long time. And really, that might be true. I, I, it's, it's really, really hard. But you can buy some of these franchises at a third of book value, assuming that their deposits don't run out the door and their loan books don't have major problems and their cost of deposits are do not squeeze their earnings to nothing. You probably can do okay. Uh, ben Graham, who wrote The Intelligent Investor and was Warren Buffett's professor at Columbia, say said if you buy you know something at thirty percent of book value, mathematically you're going to generally do okay. You know, banks maybe it's a little bit more difficult on that, than that because their business is so fleeting. I still think though that you know a company like Schwab is ju- it's just a world class enterprise. It's really uh, it's basically too big to fail. And their earnings might be pressured for a little while as deposits cost them a little bit more. But Schwab makes money in a lot of different ways and a lot of different ways that I think a lot of, um, you know, average investors don't really appreciate. And I don't really see that position changing until I start seeing a lot of accounts really closing and Schwab keeps opening new accounts. So I think it's going to be okay. The other one I wrote about was UBS. And, you know, look, that's you're basically buying the country of Switzerland. <laughs> and I don't think you want to bet against the, the Swiss <laughs> government, you know, and you're buying it at a 20 percent discount to tangible book value. And it's a pretty good place to be. I mean, they absolutely stole Credit Suisse. I mean, it's an unbelievable buy, you know, deal they got. And they got tremendous support, they have tremendous support from the Swiss government, which is what I mean by that's going to be tough. And I also wrote an I wrote an article uh, that will be posting I think Friday or Saturday uh, another interesting little strategy about buying uh, warrants on companies that despacked you know spacs that bought other companies I, I generally think the the spac space is awful it's been a terrible uh, value destroyer over the past couple of years but I think like I said last interview. If you pick through the the detritus of of things, you can find uh, little nuggets that have been thrown out. And some of these little nuggets, uh, there there are a handful of SPACs that were actual real businesses. They have real balance sheets. They have real cash flows. They have real uh, business strategies that I, I think are at least viable. And they are very likely takeover candidates. I mean, these are companies that were bought for $10 a share a year ago that are now trading at a dollar a share. And, you know, the operations haven't necessarily deteriorated. And there's one, there's a little quirk in the structure of the SPACs, uh, in the warrants that if the company gets bought out for more than a certain amount of cash, that the warrants, uh, have to be, uh, redeemed. So there's an article that's going to be going out broadly over the next couple of days. I've already submitted it and, I'll be uh, breaking down a list of SPAC warrants that I think are particularly juicy uh, that, you know, a lot of these SPAC warrants could return somewhere between 100 and 700 percent if in the right situation um, with relatively low risk over time. So I'll be writing about those in a series that will also be behind my paywall. So much sifting to do in the market. So much sifting to do as as investors. Yeah. Yeah. You have to think your spots carefully in that right now, though. I, like I said, you know, I, if you, the most economic activity I see is not good. 
the bank, I think there's a tremendous amount of pullback of credit availability, which is generally not good for the economy. And yet the S&P broadly is trading at a pretty big multiple. And that's, it's got to be careful. Absolutely. Absolutely. I went on a hike recently in, in nearly 100 degree weather and somebody kept saying, keep your eyes open, be safe. And I think as investors, we would do wise to heed the same advice. The service is called Catalyst Hedge Investing. Anything that you want to leave with investors before we temporarily say goodbye? No, uh, I, I hope people consider uh, subscribing to the service. I'm not looking to be the biggest subscription service, only the best. Boom. So I'm looking for, uh, you know, thoughtful, intellectually curious investors who like interacting with me and like interacting with each other. So very hopeful that uh, people will take a look at the offering. And um, you know, if they have any questions, I'm happy to uh, respond to uh, any of those. Yeah, I personally always appreciate people taking serious looks at at what they're analyzing. And I think you are uh, showcasing what a serious look you're taking at the stock market and stocks and how you're thinking about things beyond just the numbers picture, but also the bigger picture, macro and micro together. And I know listeners are, are affording themselves a lot of benefits from that. So Appreciate you coming on this show. Look forward to the community you're building on Seeking Alpha with Catalyst Hedge Investing. Until next time, appreciate this time. Thanks so much, Reno. Talk to you soon.